So I, uh, I know many of you might have come here this morning hoping for uh, more decoding of the mysteries of Revelation and maybe even to write that next bestseller, Seven Seals or 144,007 Seals. Ooh, just give me credit if you use it. But uh, yeah, like Andrew said, we're going to take a break and look at some Old Testament narrative this morning. So uh, let's, let's read the word this morning. Exodus 17, verses 1 to 7. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock. And water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, you told the prophet Isaiah that as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall your word be that goes out from your mouth. It shall not return to you empty, but it shall accomplish that which you purpose. Lord, I pray that you sustain that promise among us this morning. Lord, have your way with us. Write, impress, and stamp the law into our hearts. Draw us closer into yourself in holiness and fear. For your thoughts are not our thoughts, and your ways are not our ways. And Lord, we need to know them. Sanctify us by your grace. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Now, as a way of introductions this morning, I want to ask a series of questions that are hopefully relatable to you. And um, the first of which is, have you ever wondered why Moses striking a rock in Exodus 20, just somehow that was the sin that got him excluded from the promised land? Or rather, you know, before he dies, he sings his famous song in Exodus 32, and five times he calls God the rock. Or have you ever wondered what was so powerful about Jesus' response from Deuteronomy to his second temptation that references our passage here this morning? And even more so, maybe, why does Paul, in 1 Corinthians 10, call Christ the rock and that they drank from 
that spiritual rock. Our passage before us this morning in seven short verses, I think, packs such a heavy punch that it reverberates through the rest of the Bible. You see it in the rest of the Pentateuch, the Psalms, Hebrews, and even the Gospel according to John. And I believe it is because that this passage shows us that the God who delivered out of Egypt is worthy of our trust along the journey to the promised land because he is all we need. Let me say that again. The God who delivered out of Egypt is worthy of trust along the journey to the promised land because he is all we need. It also, this passage also poignantly shows man's kind's utter failure to believe that. If you came this morning waffling on the idea or doctrine of total depravity, this passage might tip the scales and push that over. But what great relief to know that God, God is all we need and he gives himself to us. So the first point I want to make is God is trustworthy because he sovereignly leads. Look at verse one again with me. The people of Israel move on from the wilderness according to the commandment of the Lord. And they encamp at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. What we are to understand about this is that God intentionally led his people to a place there was no water. Now, before we think about why God would do that, I I want us to think about some critical things here that are important about this. Well, one, the wilderness. When I think of wilderness being from Montana, I think of this beautiful wilderness complex that was like a million plus acres of untouched forest. And I think, oh, you camped at Rephidim. Just go over the next ridge and there's beautiful water there. Great trees, shade, amazing. I love it. And it's my happy place. That's not this wilderness. This wilderness is barren and means to kill you. You don't survive the wilderness. The wilderness will kill you. It is barren desert. And God led them to a place where there was no water. But we also must remember that this isn't the first time he's done this. Right after the Song of Miriam, where they're singing and praising and proclaiming God for bringing the Red Sea upon Egypt, they move across, they go beyond, and there's no water. God already provided water twice for them along their journey. The other thing we need to think about is every morning during their journey to Rephidim, and for the last few weeks, they've had this miraculous bread from heaven show up every single morning. Every morning they needed food in this barren wilderness. There it was. There it was. I mean, think about it. The people literally ate food that just appeared on the ground. 
And then while their stomach is full, going, Moses, hey, hey, breakfast was good and all, but water. Where's our water? They can't see it. The third thing that's important to remember is that along their journey, they have this huge supernatural pillar of God's presence right among them. Listen to chapter 13, verses 21 and 22, when God talks about them escorting them out of Egypt. He says, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. And to think, in just six verses, Moses is going to summarize their complaint and their accusation to God. Is he really among us or not? You know, like, if Moses was sarcastic, I could see him going, Oh, yeah, you know, look, that thing there, just a naturally occurring phenomenon. It just somehow leads people out of Egypt, enslaved people. Oh, I forgot. Yeah, that's normal. Is God among us or not? Just look up. Just look up, guys. Thankfully, Moses was not sarcastic. But seriously, God's very presence led them out of Egypt. It crushed their enemy, was ever present before them, leading them to their destination and constantly providing for their needs. And now God's presence led them to no water. But yeah, let's be honest. That does sound a little weird. Why? Why? Was God just directionally challenged in the sand dunes, get turned around a little bit? Why did he do that? Well, 40 years later, Moses tells us why. 40 years later, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, after he reads the law to the second generation after this one dies and is killed in the wilderness because of their sin and disobedience, he tells the second generation as they go into the promised land, here's why God did this. If you want to turn to Deuteronomy 8, you can with me or I'm going to read most of it. Here's why. Verse 1 starts, The whole commandment that I command you today you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. That'd be nice. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, 
the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. Verses 7 to 10 continue forward and talking about the good land he's bringing them to and all the abundance there and that they are to thank and bless him for it. Then verse 11 picks up with a warning. And it's this warning. Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And then verses 19 and 20 talk about the peril and penalty and disobedience for idolatry. Right? The point is this. The God who delivered out of Egypt, verse 14. The God giving the good land, verse 1, verse 7, is the same God testing, disciplining, causing hunger, and humbling along the journey because he doesn't want us preoccupied with stuff. Stuff is not the point. He wants our attention and our affections fixed on him because he is the source of all life and goodness. Look again at chapter 8 of Deuteronomy, verse 16. To do you good in the end. He's bringing and stripping them of everything but him. He is the good in the end. Their reliance upon him is the good in the end. In a couple chapters forward of Exodus into 19, right before we get the law, Moses recounts what the Lord said. I, you, you saw how I brought you up out of Egypt and I bore you on eagles' wings and I brought you to myself. I brought you to myself. That's the whole point. Him, he is the point. And this is exactly what John or Jesus prays in John 17. Father, may they be one in us. May the church, my bride, share this divine relationship that we've had from all eternity. This is the whole point. And that's the good. 
and God is causing them to hunger and thirst for Him. And this is why God is trustworthy. It's because He sovereignly leads us to places where we need Him. You know, the past week and a half, it became very apparent to me how much of an Israelite I am. Go figure! You can ask my wife, she'll tell you, yes. But there was something painful in my life I was trying to avoid. But instead of it disappearing as I wanted it to, it just manifested itself in just bitterness and frustration. You see, but I also believed myself better than the complaining Israelites because I would never vocalize it. And in fact, driving last night over to my brother-in-law's, I was convicted even further that I used to boast about being better than that because I wouldn't accuse God of it. But my actions said it all. I didn't want to walk through the pain because I didn't believe God was going to provide along that journey. Yet it wasn't the pain I was rejecting. Like the Israelites in Exodus 17, ultimately I was rejecting God. I was rejecting God's humbling, His discipline, His testing of my heart. Pain, distress, vulnerability, discomfort, they all have a way of exposing what we truly believe and simultaneously bringing us closer to God. And that's the point. Pain pushes us to actually just react and respond in our true belief. And that's what God does with the Israelites here in Exodus 17. But God is trustworthy because he sovereignly leads. And he, through those moments, will do us good in the end. As I bring this point to a close, I want to read a quote from a theologian by the name of A.W. Pink. And I think it's good for our reflection to remember in those moments when God sovereignly leads us to pain, suffering, and dependence. He says, well for us to remember this, Oft times when we reach some particularly hard place, when the streams of creature comfort are dried up, we blame ourselves, our friends, our brethren, or the devil, perhaps. But the first thing to realize in every circumstance and situation where faith is tested is that the Lord himself has brought us there. If this be apprehended, it will not be so difficult for us to trust him to sustain us while we remain there. God is trustworthy because he sovereignly leads and he's all we need. But that isn't the end of our story. Legal complaint is taken up against the Lord and his servant because of which something needs to be done. A resolution must come forth. And this brings us to our second point. God is trustworthy because he provides for our need. The next episode within verses 2 to 6 happens in two movements or two dialogues. Moses with the people 
and then Moses to God. Look with me again at verse 2. It says, Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? They obviously didn't live in South Florida where there was abundant amount of rain. <laughs> now, now, when we hear quarrel, we often assume it's just a synonym of verse 3's grumble, right? Ah, yeah, that's just what they're doing. Complaining, complaining, complaining. But the word quarrel is much more intense than that. It is lawsuit language. It is a way of bringing about a legitimate accusation that needs legal proceeding. This is no mere complaining, though that's bad enough in its own right. But here, the people are accusing God and demanding justice. But just what are they accusing God? They're accusing God of murder and betrayal, wickedness, double-crossing his promise, calling his deliverance a farce. Verse 3 makes this really clear when they ask, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children? And they want justice. Look at Moses' cry to the Lord in verse 4. They are almost ready to stone me. Moses isn't being a coward. The people are about to exact punishment for a crime that deserves the death penalty. Eye for an eye. Yet, initially what the Lord speaks to Moses as the answer doesn't seem to lessen this tension. Verse 5, look at that. God says, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Essentially, this is God's way of saying, if they want court, let's give it to them. Take the elders as witnesses and future judicial authority. Take the rod of God's authoritative judgment and ironically salvation, which is very important, and separate yourself from the people for their judgment. That's what God is establishing right there. And every good reader should have their breath hold right now. The tension is high and the Israelites should be terrified. Because what's going to happen? But verse 6 turns on a dime. And God does not give them what they deserve. He does the exact opposite of what we would anticipate. God continues speaking in verse 6. Behold, I will stand before you on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock. Israel is not called into account for their false accusation. But God put himself forward as their substitute 
and stands before Moses. God does not stand before men, but here, but at the cross. Man stands before God, but not here. Then God tells Moses to take the judgment staff of his own authority, God's own authority, and he says, strike. Bear down and give the judgment. And with that, God does not give the people their due reward. In his grace, he gives them water to drink. God is trustworthy because he provides for our need. Brothers and sisters, I want to submit that this is one of the greatest pictures of substitutionary atonement outside of Calvary. A few chapters prior, we were celebrating the inauguration of the Passover, but even that, even that, it's the blood of lambs and goats. But here, like the cross, God himself takes the punishment of the people by authorizing Moses to strike while he stood before him. This is why it is such it was such a grave offense for Moses to make, take another crack at it in Numbers 20. No, the punishment was paid. Now just speak to the rock and water will come forth. That is why God told Moses his sin was not upholding him as holy before the people. It was supposed to remind them of Exodus 17, not reenact it. And this is why Paul, in his first letter to the Corinthians, calls Christ the rock. The eternal Son of God put himself forward for our sin and was dealt the judgment blow from the heavenly judge so that we could be counted righteous. Drink from Christ. This morning, if you have not experienced his grace, drink from Christ. In John chapter 7, Jesus cries out at the last day of the Feast of Booths. He says, on the last day of the feast, the greatest day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. The call is come to Christ and drink. And it's no wonder that at the end of John's gospel, when we get the crucifixion account, he's the only one that clues us in that as he was pierced, blood and water came forth. The one who said to the woman at the well, I will give you water that leads to eternal life. He has called. Come, drink. And we must. And so 
we should sing, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let my let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save me from wrath and make me pure. I want to conclude this morning with my last point, and it is this. God is trustworthy because we are not. If ever there was a passage to highlight our utter need and our wickedness, it is here. An enslaved Israel sees the most epic miracles of the Bible, witnesses the downfall of the most powerful nation to date, were eating because of a miracle, yet they still hated God. The God who just freed them. And I was pondering why this week. Like, why? Why? There's many reasons, but one that pressed upon me was their initial annoyance to the journey. Just right out of the way, before they even get to the Red Sea, they're annoyed. They're annoyed at their shepherds leading. And what they ignored is no God, no salvation. No God, no promised land. No God, no journey. You can't have your cake and eat it too. There's only one thing that's needed, and it's God. That's exactly why we are told in verse 7, Moses renames the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is he among us or not? Is he actually for us or not? Does he actually care? Essentially, Moses renames the place failure. And he leaves it there to send waves throughout the rest of the Bible, which the author of Hebrews picks up. Do not harden your hearts. Do not harden your hearts on that day. And through that understanding and humility that we need to recognize our need and dependence upon the source of life, may we repent and sing, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. God is worthy of our trust on our journey to heavenly Zion because he is all we need. And he has given us himself. That is our hope. And our hope is secure.
Pray with me. God, you who did not spare your own son, but gave him up for our sins to redeem us to yourself. Lord, may we look upon your love and be drawn into you. Help us to admire the cross for what it is and be driven by the Spirit in all ways. Help us to grow sanctified by your loving kindness. Lord, thank you that you took upon yourself the wrath we deserve. How great a God we serve. The God who leads and continually guides and to do us good in the end. Stir our affections. Reorder them under your providence. Amen.